The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Michael Fish is co-founder and CEO of American Securities. They're uh, uh, one of the older private equity firms around. Uh, been been in business since 1994. They run uh, over $27 billion in, in assets. Uh, if you're at all interested in what it's like to, to run a private equity firm that doesn't just buy up companies and parcel them out, but rather partners with management, keeps the teams in place on the companies they buy, and, and just facilitates the improvement of the company, how it operates, how they're able to bring expertise, both in uh, along with capital and whatever necessary debt is, as well as a, a network of experts, then I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. Um, uh, there, there aren't a lot of companies and there aren't a lot of people that have the historical perspective on the rise of private equity uh, like Michael Fish does. I found this conversation to really be intriguing, and I think you will also. With with no further ado, my discussion with American Security CEO, Michael Fish. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. It, it's a pleasure to have you. So so let's talk a little bit about your, your background. BA in economics from Dartmouth. You get a Stanford MBA. What was the original career plan? Were you always thinking about going into finance? The original career plan was to be employed in provide a safety net for my mother and my two sisters. Right. Uh, but if I had a plan as to how to do that when I went to college, it was learn as much as I could, as fast as I could, and get a BA, and then become an accountant and a lawyer. Because then I figure I could always be employed either managing the numbers or doing law and get those two degrees. That That's not the direction you ended up going, though. What, what was it that made you say, hey, this finance thing looks like it's uh, fun and interesting? Well, it's, you know, like life, it, it's a serendipitous series of things. I met a terrific man at Dartmouth named John Hennessy Jr. Uh, he was the ex-dean of the Tuck School, the business school at Dartmouth College, and I took a freshman seminar with him because I needed a course, and uh, he became a mentor. And uh, he once asked me what you just asked me, and I explained to him, get the CPA, get the law degree, I'd always be employable, and he kind of said, hmm. Aim higher. Have you thought about an MBA? <laughs> really? That's very interesting. And, um, it says the person at Tuck Business School, right? Exactly. And uh, and he ultimately encouraged me to apply to the 3-2 program. They had a dormant program left over from the Korean War. Mm -hmm. um, you know, business schools, of course, have favored people with experience. So five years gives you undergraduate and graduate? Is yes. that the concept? You basically do three years uh, as an undergrad. You apply to the Tuck School. If you get in, and it hadn't taken anyone in over a decade, <laughs> then you do your senior year effectively as a first-year MBA, do the second year, and you get both degrees in five years. Wow. And uh, he encouraged me to apply. He wrote a recommendation for me, and I guess surprisingly, not surprisingly, after that, uh, I did get in. Uh, and but you I, went to Stanford, not Tuck. So I trotted down the street to uh, called his assistant, made an appointment, all sweaty and nervous, and went to thank him for his gracious recommendation. And he said, in in the way of good mentors, well, do you want to go? <laughs> and I'm thinking he's the ex dean of the business school. Like this is a trick question. And I gave him the deer in the headlights look, and he said, "Well, let me let, let's let, let me imagine we got three letters here. We got a letter to get into Tuck, a letter to get into Harvard, and a letter to get into Stanford." And I said, "Well," and I thought to myself, "Well, I know he went to Harvard, right?" Um, and he said, "Dean of Tuck, is this a trick question?" And I said something like, "Well, I guess Harvard or Stanford." And he said, "Well, then we're done." <laughs> and I said, but I'm not into Harvard and Stanford. He said, well, you, you will be. <laughs> That's very funny. So so in between Dartmouth and Stanford, you worked for Goldman Sachs doing M&A, early 80s. 
Uh, how was that? How did that help uh, prepare your path to private equity? Well, that same man, the next year I trotted down and and he said, well, okay, we're applying to Harvard and Stanford, aren't you? And I, when do I write my letter of recommendation? And so he did, and I was fortunate to be accepted to both. And that was very important because when uh, this was the dawning of what is now a big analyst program across the country in all banks and investment banks. But back then, uh, in 1983, uh, the entire analyst program of Goldman Sachs was 25 people. Wow, and that was amazing. a big expansion from the prior year before, and it had only been in existence for two years. So Wall Street was so much smaller. Right. Barry, you remember back in 1983, Goldman Sachs had about 30,000 total employees, 1,500 They, they were a private partnership. They weren't even public. Yep. So very the, different world. And the entire merger department of Goldman Sachs in 1983 was 32 people. That's amazing. Uh, and I, I like to say none were lower to the ground than me, a first-year <laughs> analyst, which meant I was below ground. Right. And how did you end up at, at Bain & Company in Paris? What was, what was that like? Um, well, in the time that I was working at Goldman Sachs in mergers, uh, there were a bunch of big public companies who were on... Uh, we were on M&A retainer, they call it. So the public companies looking to buy lots of acquisitions, and they would have us running the numbers with their people for them, as they would have Bain and Company in two of these situations doing the strategic work alongside their management team. So I got to know the work, and we would jointly make presentations to the senior management team or their board if a deal went far. And I got to see firsthand what Bain was doing in strategic consulting and understand their view of business separate from the numbers. And so when I did go out to Stanford, um, I wanted to spend my summer learning that better and in Paris. And Bain was kind enough to offer me a job to facilitate. I have to imagine that Paris in the mid-80s was just delightful. Um, uh, it was not tough duty. I was very lucky to be there and grateful all summer. So, so you come out of Stanford, you, you enter the LBO world, um, what we now call essentially uh, private credit and private equity. What was it like in, in the late 1980s? How to be the Wild West? It really wasn't a uh, mature industry the way it is today. Well, Barry, again, like Wall Street, it was all so much smaller. In 1983, by my reckoning, the entire global institutional private equity business was less than a billion dollars of committed capital. That's unbelievable. Large, That's nothing. The largest fund then was KKR with $175 million. Mm -hmm. The second largest fund was Forceman Little with 150. I mean, these are transaction uh, levels today. Those are, entire funds are like partial transactions. They'd be less than, I'm sure, 10 or 20% of what KKR would put into many private equity deals. So you're doing LBO, you're doing M&A. How did those experiences lead uh, to a career in private equity? So um, there was almost no M&A activity. There was no M&A departments in any investment bank, really, until the very late 70s. Because the today, where we talk about return on equity, your margins, what's your stock price— Back then, if, if you were in business uh, in you know the real world, they said, how many people work for you? And if you started your career on a line, became a line uh, manager or foreman, became a plant manager maybe, or a division manager, so on up the line, if people ask you how many people work for you, what do you mean? and you say, well, I, I sold a business, you know, I had 1,000, but now I'm at you know, 800. What do you mean, Barry, you're not a good manager? Right. I, I thought you were a manager. So literally nobody sold in. And the only things that got sold were bankruptcies. The odd company that went bankrupt would need to get sold. But there wasn't an active M&A business. There wasn't a leveraged finance business. All the things we know now. So when I was at Goldman Sachs doing M&A um, from 83 to 85, there came to be some people looking at the M&A business was started to boom. be a fraction of what it is now. But there came to be in certain situations buyers that were bootstrap buyers that were, uh, we would call them today, they then leveraged buyout financiers, and now we call it the private equity industry. And so I came to see some of these entities at the very early stages, KKR would be one, but there were others, and a lot of entrepreneurs trying to do the same thing, because wealthy families were often these bootstrap buyers. Um, and honestly, it was almost like a religious war between two views of the world. 
EPS, earnings per share, that all public companies would look at to evaluate mergers <clears throat> and cash flow, EBITDA, which didn't exist as a term, believe it or not, back then. But EBITDA cash flow was how these, these bootstrap buyers would look at it. And um, this seemed kind of interesting and new and different. And I became interested in how they did what they did and how they valued it and the differences between that and EBITDA. So, I'm sorry, so- then e- EPS. So in 1994, you and your co-founder, Chuck Klein, launch uh, what is the present version of American Securities. What was the catalyst for launching the firm then? Uh, What kind of business were you hoping to build? Well, it was more than just Chuck and I. So we had the great uh, gift of uh, the Rosenwald family. Mm -hmm. So I had worked for two private equity firms when I got out of Stanford. So I'd I'd really gotten a little bit of experience. I was still young, uh, hope I still am young today. Uh, But I'd gotten a little bit of experience and I met Chuck and Chuck was then the um, senior financial advisor to the William Rosenwald family. And the William Rosenwald family, um, Julius was the genius behind Sears Roebuck. And so they had uh, largesse from the Rosenwald fortune. So in other words, this after building, helping to build Sears and run Sears for a number of years, this was a, we would call that today a family office of? Ab- of- it absolutely was. It was called WRFA, William Rosenwald uh, Family Associates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julius Rosenwald, who was the eminence grease behind the growth of Sears, the way Ray Kroc was with McDonald, genius for the catalog and, and uh, downtown department stores. Um, Sears ultimately got taken public. He passed away in the <clears throat> 1930s. Bill was his youngest son. Bill separated his money from that of his siblings and came to New York and right after World War II set up his family office, um, modeled along the lines of the Rockefeller family. Uh, and, and he founded the name, he registered the name American Securities Corporation, the first corporate-owned broker-dealer. All the other ones had been private partnerships, but he had capital and didn't want to uh, have it at risk. And that uh, family office had done what were then called bootstraps, mm-hmm. all sorts of investments, not just the stocks and bonds common of wealthy families of the day, but actually buying businesses, some very, very successful businesses. That were still private? That were private when they bought them. Now, one of them is public and has an mar- equity market cap of $35 billion. Right. Um, but Chuck was their senior financial advisor, so he's buying, selling stocks. And um, Chuck and I hit it off on our first breakfast on the Upper East Side here in uh, New York, and he kindly uh, asked me if I would come join him, um, saying that he would, uh, if I, he wanted me to come join him. Um, he was 55. He wanted to retire when he's 60. Uh, families take a while to get used to somebody, so he wanted right. me to work with him, and then uh, he'd retire. And I said to Chuck, I really like you, but that's not really what I want to do. But I got a different idea. You be my partner. We'll set up a private equity firm and the Rosenwald family will be our lead investor, and that's what I want to do. And everybody signed on and said, let's go. That, that's the launch of the modern version of American Securities. It's more complicated than that because Chuck was a very cautious investor. So what Chuck actually said was, okay, well, come work with me for a year, and assuming that works out well, then we'll go raise that's this private equity firm. Right. So I joined the Rosenwald family in uh, the spring of 1993, and we, we did some investing together for the first year, and we raised our private equity fund the next year. I almost feel compelled to point out to younger listeners who may not be familiar with what Sears was back in the day, but I'm not exaggerating when I say Sears was the Amazon of its time. It was America's largest retailer. Every major city, every major town had a Sears. They were dominant, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, I like to say, I hadn't thought about thinking about Amazon. I like to say they created the Walton-esque fortune of okay. the first half of the 1900s because they were Walmart at least, and maybe Amazon too. They had a one-third market share of certain product sales in the entire country. It's unbelievable. And they were also an amazing, they, they picked, Julius successfully leveraged two really great trends. One was the urbanization of America and the downtown department store, which was so prevalent then. And then almost on a different axis, the catalog, 
which which was mailed. The Sears catalog was mailed to homes across the country, and it allowed anyone in any community of any background to buy exactly what the city slickers were buying, mm-hmm. or vice versa. And that was, and they were. Um, Interestingly, I think it's true to say the first non-utility, non-railroad that was thought stable enough to be allowed to be a public company. Huh. Really Only utilities and railroads at the beginning of the stock market were thought um, stable enough. So so last question about that. That's really fascinating. And, and there's a whole long history of, of things that Sears spun out. Um, I think the Discover Card came from Sears and Allstate Insurance and a couple of banks. I mean, it was just one different entity after another. That's absolutely true. And the family separately is responsible, the Rosenwald family, for Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Oh, really? For the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Uh Uh-huh. Julius Rosenwald was an important trustee uh, of Tuskegee University and friend of I think it's Booker T. Washington. I mean, the family's philanthropic legacy is staggering. Hmm. That, that's really fascinating. You know, I, it, it's funny. I'm very aware of um, the audience age, and it's a range from people listening who might be in college or grad school and people who have are, are retired, and I sort of feel like, all right, some of you youngsters may not know, this was literally the biggest retailer of its day, whether you want to compare it to Walmart for the stores or Amazon, the catalog, not all that different from online shopping. They were just massive and failed to pivot when when the time came. So, hey, everything everything is temporary, right? Um, last question about the launch of the firm. So, 94, it, it's still early days for private equity. Not a lot of transactions, lot of, not a lot of money under management, when you're out pitching this to institutional investors in the middle of a giant bull market, let me add, in equities, what, what, was, uh, what was the response? Did people understand that this was a different type of investing and potentially a diversifier, or did they look at you kind of funny? Well, Barry, to, to paint where we were in the arc of private equity, so as we were talking before, uh, it didn't it didn't exist until the very late 70s at best and then was you know from five firms to 10 firms to 100 firms in the 1980s and so it was growing and when we went to raise our first fund again we had the great benefit of the support of the William Rosenwald family they were a committed lead investor um, but i had been involved in some transactions and had and those transactions had happily gone well Chuck Klein and the family had been involved in a bunch of transactions. So we had some form of a track record Mm -hmm. that we could talk to people about and a very specific um, investment objective about what we were planning to do. And so there were, uh, certainly there weren't that many, and we did talk to a lot of people, uh, but we were grateful to have uh, a college endowment, a, a publicly traded insurance company, a publicly traded company, corporations, pension fund, and some wealthy individuals join our first fund, which was a mighty $71.4 million at the final closing. Wow. So so you mentioned you had some specific objectives. Back in 1994, what were those objectives? Well, building on the, um, the investment legacy of the Rosenwald family and some of the things uh, that I had been doing and thinking about um, – we agreed that we were only going to buy the market-leading company, the number one market share company in its niche. I mean, obviously, these would be modest-sized companies given the size of our fund, but the number one market share company. We would look to only buy that company in industry, which was GDP growth or better. Mm-hmm. We would look to only support the existing CEO. We wanted to support the Meaning man- you're not coming in cleaning house and installing your own guys. You're looking for a management team we, you want to work with. We had then, and we have still today... A relationship focus, and you know, changing it just and it's practical. Changing executives is risky. We believed that if we're coming in and and feel aligned and simpatico with the management team and particularly the CEO running the business that delivered the earnings that we're valuing the business on, if we could just help them be the same or better, we'd have only good outcomes for investors 
and why take the risk of changing management? We'd rather just look for a new situation. And and we wanted to have relatively modest leverage. We, we tended at the beginning to capitalize our companies with less debt um, than other investors. Huh, really, really intriguing. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit about $27 billion, 180 full-time professionals. What is the secret to successfully growing a private equity firm for you coming up on your 30th year? Uh great people. You know, I like to say money is the ultimate commodity. So our product, if you will, is money. That's what we invest. And so if we're going to outperform for our investors, it's going to be the people that we've attracted, our investment philosophy, and maybe some processes that we've employed. So so you've done plenty of deals over that 30-year period. What stands out? Anything really memorable? Any Any transactions that stick with you? Um, you know, when I think about that, we've certainly had the uh, the great pleasure to be involved with some great businesses, but it's really the people that stick out the most. It's, you know, life is people, mm-hmm. and we are in the people business, managers, investors, lenders, bankers, the whole ecosystem, and it's the special relationships which we're proud to have created, um, and some of the CEOs from our very first fund, our very first deals, you know, 28 years ago, are still close friends of mine. I'll be going to Florida uh, to spend a weekend with one of our first CEOs and his wife, staying with them uh, next month. Huh. That that's really interesting. So so let's stay focused on that um, concept of people and and partnering with management rather than just taking over a company and, and cleaning house. Uh, is this relatively uncommon in the industry? I have to imagine uh, other other companies see the value of this. Or, or when you first started doing this, was it kind of a, a one-off? We, we weren't really sure what anyone else was doing at the beginning. You're just kind of doing it and hoping it works out. Right. Um, as it turns out, you're absolutely right. There is a consulting firm which did a study a few years ago that 25% of the CEOs are gone at closing in most really? pri- the average private equity transaction. Wow. 50% are gone by two years, and only 25% are there after four years. In contrast to that, now for our 30-year existence, our what I call CEO win rate is over 80%. Meaning? 80% of the men and women who were running the business before we showed up were running it at exit or are running it today if we still own it. So this is really very different if if the typical firm, they're in half the situations, they're gone either at closing or, or two years later. Um, we are walking the talk in terms of management partnership, and we really believe in it. So, so when you're evaluating a company, this is more than EBITDA or earnings per share or something like that. You're really doing your due diligence on the management team and how effective they are and, hey, are these people we want to get into bed with and do business with? All, all those things. We, have, we, we add a very important management dimension to the basic you know, product, services, customers, raw material suppliers, and so on. How do you evaluate that? Because that's listen. When you look at EBITDA, it's numbers on a on a Excel spreadsheet or Google Sheets or whatever you're using. When you're in, evaluating people, it's much squishier and qualitative. How do you make that that how do how do you institutionalize that process? Well, you know, it's 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 very um, it's very bespoke. Every person is different. Uh, Different of our colleagues are different, even though we all share the same belief in CEO partnership and management team partnership. And it's really just deciding you want to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not perfect. Our management teams aren't perfect. Um, but can we make, I like to say my favorite equation is one plus one equals three. Mm-hmm. Can we work with a management team and together 
uh, be great partners and do something different together. And we bring certain resources that some other firms don't have. The largest group of our 180 people that you cited are our so-called resources group. These are full-time operating professionals. They're not virtual. They're not consultants. They're not 1099. They are W-2 colleagues. And uh, so we have a lot of resources we can bring to our companies in purchasing, procurement, strategy, IT, HR, you name it. Um, and some some executives are excited by that. They want the help. They, they want a fresh set of eyes on certain problems or extra extra arms and legs on problems. And some people say, you know, we got that. We, we know what we're doing. You just put up the money and we're better partners for the former than the latter. So you describe a lot of your investments as platform uh, investments, and you've made 78 of these platform investments over the last 30 years. Tell us a little bit, bit about that phrase, and, and then we'll get into the subsequent 305 add-on investments that, that followed. Well, a, a platform investment for us is really the first big investment. It's we're investing in a company with the management team. We're typically the control investor, so we'll own more than 51%, sometimes almost 100% of the company. But the management will always be an investor with us. And that is, and that first unique investment is a so-called platform. Some investments will never have add-on acquisitions. They mm-hmm. can grow organically or other ways. Um, but many acquisitions do find smaller competitors or sometimes mergers of equals, and we then build them with add-on, what are called add-on acquisitions, into the existing platform. Hmm. And that, so that 300 would be a lot of add-ons. And sometimes they're they're very small, sometimes they're material. It just depends on the company. So when you're putting money into a company, is this, you're obviously buying shares from somebody. Are you also providing a, a level of operating capital? How much in a typical structure what is previous owners selling and what is money that goes uh, for, for future deployment? It, it greatly depends. The interesting thing um, about us is we are very attractive to founder CEOs. Um, almost half of the investments in our most recent fund, half of the companies we've purchased, we purchased from founder CEOs who continue to be the CEO and in many cases rolled over an enormous amount of money into this company um, that we now control where they're still being the CEO. So I like to think of those as very choosy investors. They mm-hmm. really care about their company because they founded it. They really care about their company because they're running it. And they really care about their company because they're going to maintain a very big personal investment. And um, in a lot of those situations, they are happy and excited to partner with us as we are them. And I think they're attracted by the resources we bring other than money. To the second part of your question on what is the capital structure and what's the money, typically um, the capital structure, uh, the money that we put up and oftentimes lenders, if if it's a debt-free business, goes to selling shareholders. Mm -hmm. But as part of that, of course, you want to capitalize a company with undrawn lines of credit, Mm -hmm. so-called revolvers, uh, or delay draw term loans, other terms of like that. So there's liquidity uh, to run the business on a day-to-day basis, you know, uh, survive a rainy day, um, and also grow the business as makes sense if it is by add-on acquisition or new customer acquisitions or new plants we're building, whatever. So, so I want to separate the platform initial investments with the add-ons. What are you looking for when you're making a, a platform investment? What is it that gets you excited about a particular company or not so excited and saying, hey, this isn't exactly uh, for us. So going back to what we started 30 years ago, we're looking for the number one market share player or- So that's persisted. In other words, the original ideas are still driving your your investment strategies. We work really hard to get better tactically and execution-wise and with our scale advantages now, but the fundamental investment philosophy hasn't changed. We're looking for that market share leader, which has a sustainable competitive advantage, we hope, that we can invest behind and see stability um, so that there won't be a loss of capital. And, and above average GDP growth. And we're looking for that company to exist, as you said, in um, an industry that is growing at GDP or better. It's not, now we use terms like, is there a tailwind? Mm-hmm. Huh. So so we'll talk a little bit about sectors uh, in, in a few moments. Um, I'm sorry, Barry, and I have to add, and we're looking to back the existing management team. They, they're so going to stick around, right? We want, we want the CEO to want to be our partner. I mean, we, we, we obviously know a lot of managers, 
but we really get excited if the CEO is going to be our partner going forward. So, so competitive edge, better than average growth, a management team you like, um, that doesn't sound like the worst sort of investment. That, those sound like pretty attractive things. How many companies are out there that check all your boxes? You, I mean, quite. A, I mean, it's, it's a lot or a little depending on how big your screen is. But mm -hmm. we, it depends on the year. But we will typically see three hundred and fifty to four hundred and fifty companies that look like they might be suitable. Um, this number is a rough guess, but we probably do very detailed work sometimes with outside consulting firms um, and other advisors on maybe forty of those, mm -hmm. and we will make you know, final contract offers on probably around 10. Mm -hmm. That's rough guess and it changes every year. And, and we're only buying, I should say, U.S. headquartered businesses. We, that's all we've ever aspired to do. And it's Nothing already, overseas, and all, all here. Many of our companies have international operations. Some are truly global companies, some are not. But the key thing for us is that they're U.S. headquartered because this is where we know people, we know the laws, we know the language, we should have a competitive advantage, and we can be close uh, and still try to have a family life if we're traveling all over the world, there should be someone who has our advantages in, I like to say, Beijing, Berlin, Buenos Aires, and Bombay that should be not us, whereas we have those advantages here as American securities. And so when you look, hence the name, and so when you look at doing any of those 305 add-ons, um, at that point, you're familiar with, much more familiar with the company. You've already put prior capital into it. What are you looking to accomplish with, with those add-ons? Is it just a matter of getting liquidity to insiders who want some and you enlarge your position? Or is it, hey, they could use a little more capital and, and we're happy to participate? So the add-ons are all about building the existing business or the platform initial investment, uh, to use what the phrase you were using. And so there, um, it's not about a capital, it's not about getting liquidity for anyone who's an existing investor. Sometimes there will be a smaller competitor that the company wants to sell to us. Sometimes there will be um, a like-sized business in an adjacent industry where there's synergies mm -hmm. that we can save money on purchasing, let's say, by having a bigger scale platform. Um, it, it really depends on the company. So you guys have been doing this sort of platform investment and add-on investment pretty much from the beginning. Have you seen other companies, kind of other private equity firms, seemingly imitate, or or at least has this said differently? Has this strategy become more popular over the years? Oh, I think absolutely, Barry. I think I think almost everybody in private equity generally, when they make their first investment, they are looking at what might be able to acquire. Uh, in addition, um, investment bankers always market this now. Mm -hmm. in their in their materials when you're looking at a company. If this company can grow by buying all these companies, this is real or imagined, but it gets marketed. And and really it's something I think everyone in the private equity industry is pretty much thinking about every time they make an initial investment. Is there growth through acquisition as well as organic? Hmm. Re really, really intriguing. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so let's talk about the modern world and, and what you're dealing with. I have a quote of yours that I really liked, 500 basis points of rate increases changes a lot. Can you explain to us? <laughs> yes, 500 bips. It does change a lot. What does it mean for, for your work? Well, 18 months ago, just to put this in perspective, 18 months ago, uh, private equity firms generally could borrow senior debt for their companies at around six, six and a quarter percent all in. So, so, if, so if you borrowed $100 uh, of debt, you paid... Um, $6.25, let's say, of interest every year on that debt. That that was um, whatever, I forget the name of what replaced LIBOR, plus 3% or so, something like that, 2.5%. Software has replaced software. LIBOR, and then basically 
uh, it was LIBOR Safra at about 450. Mm-hmm. Depends on the qu- perceived credit quality of the company and, and syndication markets at that time. So it was basically a sp- the initial base rate was almost zero, zero to fifty basis right. points with software, plus that four fifty, let's say, and and fees amortized in, and you get to let's say six six and a quarter. And, and today, and eighteen months later, that your people like us are paying more like ten and a quarter. That's a big number. And that's the 5% more or 500 basis points you were talking about. So instead of paying $6.25, you're now paying $10.25 in interest. And you know, it's either a lot or a little depending on whether you have the money or not. Right. If if one didn't capitalize the capital structure planning to have a cushion that was that big, that higher interest rate can be a barrier to continuing to pay interest or amortize you know, pay back that debt over time. Um, and there are other problems um, like inflation where and supply chain issues, both of which cause many companies, even healthy growing companies, to need more cash for working capital. You know, if you were selling something where the raw material cost used to be a dollar and because of inflation after a couple of years, it's now a dollar twenty-five, that's 25% more money in working capital for the same number of units. Mm-hmm. And if you were... Uh, your supply chains might have come from Asia, and it takes longer because they're not quite as efficient, harder to get containers, so you actually need more units. Th- this can add up as well. So between interest and working capital, even companies that are flat or growing can have cash flow problems if they didn't plan to have enough liquidity. So when we look at the public markets, most of the major public corporations that were carrying any sort of debt all refinanced before this run up in rates. So what they're carrying uh, is fairly low interest rates. What did you see in the private sector? Were people taking advantage of low rates to, to you know, recapitalize whatever their obligations were at the lowest possible um, carrying costs? Well, public or private, uh, Barry, the uh, companies are always refinancing. You have a first issue is, are you refinancing with floating rate debt or fixed rate debt? Mm-hmm. So if I had a five-year you know, senior debt credit facility, let's say LIBOR then, software now plus 450, that whether, whether I refinanced it now or then, that, that's five and a half, six, sorry, six and a quarter percent debt that's now 10 and a quarter. But if I issued bonds or fixed rate debt, mm-hmm. then I would be insulated from their rate increase. So it's, it's firstly, did you issue fixed rate debt or floating? And if it was floating, some people still bought hedges the hedge market's pretty efficient for two, three years. Mm-hmm. Hard to hedge farther than that. Right. And so when those hedges run out, even if you were conservative, and so you really have been boring at six and a quarter for the last 18 months as rates have come up, when your hedge runs out, it's going to be 10 and a quarter if rates stay the same as they are today. I mean, m- most companies are not Apple. I remember Apple floated a bond deal at like two, two and a quarter, some crazy number. For 30 years. A- right. Sold a ton of it. Um, I'm going to imagine private companies don't have that sort of ability to float debt, but they certainly can issue um, some sort of a fixed rate. Did you see, like, what was the fixed rate world like on the private side when things were dirt cheap? Um, typically on the private side, 18 months ago, um, you wouldn't have borrowed, but few people borrowed first lien Um in the private markets. Mm-hmm. They would sometimes issue bonds. And so um, in one company we know well, that company managed to issue 6% bonds. Mm-hmm. So that was fixed rate, 6%. Sound, sounds attractive 18 months ago. Now it looks like a bargain for them. Yes, it was attractive 18 months ago because it was fixed rate. If you were conservative, you had no risk. And now, now that same company, if it came to market, would be issuing those bonds for at least 12%. So we've seen a lot of, again, in the public markets, multiple compression. Stocks were pretty pricey in the, in the low-rate era. Rates have gone up. We're starting to see multiple compression. Uh, how, how are the higher rates affecting valuations amongst private companies? So there's two issues um, that are affecting valuations. One is the amount, just the, what's called the quantum, the amount of debt you can borrow expressed as a multiple of your free cash flow mm-hmm. or your EBITDA. Until 18 months ago, um, 
a, a reasonably solid, stable business could borrow between six and six and a half times mm-hmm. its trailing um, EBITDA. And sometimes pro form projected this year it will be a little higher. You could borrow that same number off what you hope to achieve in the year you're in. Now the, now that six, six and a half is more like five for a good company, mm-hmm. and it could be four and a half if the company is perceived to have a little bit of a blemish. And the adjustments that might move it higher are harder to uh, for lenders to support. So one thing that constrains value is you fundamentally, um, if all things being equal, if you bought a company with six times leverage three or four years ago, and now a private equity firm is trying to sell it, it probably cannot sell it with that much leverage. The buyer is gonna be having five times, and that means more equity, and if you have the same equity, if you have a bigger equity check, that will be in a lower rate of return on the equity. That can impact price. And as we've talked a lot about, the higher interest rate is also a big impact, because mm-hmm. instead of paying uh, in the $100 of debt at 650, let's say 650 of interest a year, now it's 1050, mm-hmm. because rates are higher. So those two things, constrained value where earnings hasn't, even if earnings grown and it may make it hard to get all of the money out where in a sale today, if earnings are flat or only up a little bit. So, so let's look at valuation in a historical perspective. And again, most of my frame of reference are the public markets. Um, Pre-financial crisis, stocks were at least reasonably priced uh, and certainly before the mid nineties, reasonably priced. And then since the financial crisis, everything seems to have gotten, everything priced in dollars and credit seems to have gotten uh, more expensive, including stocks. Did you see anything take place similarly in private markets when we're looking at the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s? Oh, there's so many forces going on, Barry. I mean, now, and, and just think about the big impact of the five or six largest tech companies as a percent of the growth in stock markets. And the average company, uh, particularly smaller public companies, are down, not up, even though the stock market's up. So at any one time, uh, I like to say, uh, no one should ever invest in us uh, because they think we're good macroeconomists. Because (laughs) macroeconomists are often wrong, especially at inflection points when we need them to be right. That particular company, at a moment in time with its forces, uh, and its management team, and that's what we spend all of our time trying to analyze. We try to be mic- macro-aware, but really micro-focused. Right, that makes a lot of sense, and look at the financial crisis. Middle of 2008, most economists didn't see a recession coming, even though we were right in the middle of the worst one in a long time. Um, so micro- macro-aware, micro-focused, I, I, I like that description. Um, so let, let's talk about some of the challenges of the current environment, bankruptcies just hit a 13-year high. What sort of risks does this create for your portfolio companies? Um, Or is this really companies that aren't doing as well that eventually succumb to the more challenging environment? Um, it's, It's all facts and circumstances. Certainly, you're absolutely right that bankruptcies are up and most people think they're gonna keep rising, and I think they're right. Mm -hmm. And that's nothing more than what we've just talked about, the cash needs of the average business for more money in inventory, for higher interest rates, and in some, many businesses, constrained growth. And at some point, that can can, uh, reach a breaking point. Um, And so those forces will have bankruptcies rise just as lower interest rates will have that abate in the natural cycle of business. And, and my assumption is, since you're looking at companies and management teams, you're probably not all that interested in, in these bankrupt companies or distressed assets. Doesn't seem to really fit the way uh, I, I think of your model. There are, uh, there are many private equity firms that focus on so-called bankruptcy, distressed, and whatnot, and private credit providers. Um, we are trying to avoid those. <laughs> Um, and trying to buy you know, good business on the journey from good to great or great to greater. Once in a while, we will look at what I'll call good company, bad balance sheet. The fundamental company is a good company and has been, it has all the characters we like, market leadership, margins, stability, some tailwinds, and a great management team, but it just had too much debt. Mm-hmm. So we may try to provide um, 
an investment to a company like that, where when it comes out of bankruptcy or its debt problem, it's a great company with the right capital structure. But mm. most of our most of our things are not that. That, that. That's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the private equity industry. Uh, we saw a lot of investors kind of rush in uh, in 2022 when public markets, stocks, and bonds were, were doing poorly. And since then, uh, there's been lots of talk about um, how how we price private holdings. Um, what do you think about this chatter about extend and pretend or quarterly marks not being very accurate or precise? And I'm not referring to any of your companies. I'm talking generally this has been um, uh, chatter that, that's been in a lot of, uh, lot of news. So... Um Private equity, as you were talking about before, has been growing now for 35 years. Mm -hmm. So as the ecosystem keeps growing, there are more companies owned by private equity. There are more good things, and there are sometimes more bad things. So it's just it's just growing. So I think the um, trend to more people investing in private equity has grown dramatically, and it's it's continuing to grow. And the institutional investors often are thinking, if you're a big state pension fund, I want 10%, 20%. If you're some college endowments, 40% in private equity. But whatever is that percentage, they're targeting that, and they've allocated their assets to have that percentage invested in private equity. So two big forces that, have, that affect all of these institutions is one, um, what's the value of those private equity investments? So if you targeted, if you had a dollar to invest and you targeted 10% in private equity and those investments doubled, now you have 20 cents in private equity instead of 10 on your mm -hmm. dollar. So you're quote over allocated. That's really good in a sense because pr your private equity portfolios are up, but it's still a problem because you're over allocated. So you stop making new commitments. The same thing happens in a different way with your dollar. If that dollar is based on the value of all of your holdings and the stock market, say, drops by 10%, now you only got 90 cents. If your private equity is at 10 cents, you're overallocated. And if it's at 20, you got a real problem. And it's really both those factors. They're called the numerator and the denominator effect. That has caused uh, some institutions to slow down their commitments to private equity to get those back in balance because as you know, the stock market was down, not this year, but last year, and private equity values continue to be up. So that's one set of forces. The second thing you raised is, you know, how is private equity valued? The stock market gets valued every day, every stock, you can see when it trades. Every tick, right. Um, the way private equity gets valued, and all private equity firms in the United States with more than $150 million of capital under management are registered with the SEC. And one of the requirements is um, that all private equity firms value their holdings every quarter, and that at least annually those valuations are typically subjected to audit as part of the audit process. The auditors look at those valuations. Now, they're private companies. So you're, you got what a timing lag, if you will. So every quarter, so let's say on March 31st, the quarter ends, private equity firms takes time to get numbers from your companies. And so there's typically 45 days where you try to figure out what the value was on March 31st, and then you send those values to your investors. So if you're invested in private equity, March 31, by May 15th, you will get to know what the private equity firm valued those investments on. So that's a lag. So right. people talk about the lag, and that's one inherent issue. And the second is, since it's not, if we know what's trading in the public market, so you know that that was the trade yesterday. Whether someone paid too much or too little, you know that was the trade. And as we say, for every for every buyer who thinks they're getting a deal, there's a seller who is happy with the price. So there's a, a market. The valuations being done by each private equity firm, you don't really have that market test except when it's sold. And so um, some people talk about, is the value real? Uh, my personal belief in general, it's very real. The SEC comes and looks at it. The auditors bless it. And investors are sophisticated in general. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty real, although people can cast aspersions. But often that's the lag happening. You know, if, 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 you're, if, if, in, 
if at April 30th, after this notional March 31, the market dropped 10%, you say, my private equity stuff's down 10%. Well, the valuation you get May 15th is as of March 31. It's right. not going to be shown down because it's not supposed to be. You won't get that till the next quarter. So The third thing, just I mean, just yep. to say the last thing, while the institutions have backed up uh, new commitments in private equity, which is actually seems to be thawing as we're speaking, individuals, individual investors are dramatically underinvested in private equity versus institutions. And that is a, an even bigger pool of capital, if you will, on the sidelines or now trying to invest in private equity. And so that's a, another wave of flow. So most people expect private equity to keep growing. So, so you mentioned transactions are obviously the easiest way to, to measure valuation. What are you seeing in terms of deal making? Are, are private equity firms still uh, making as many investments as they were in recent years? And, and what are you seeing on the other side? What about exits? You know, we had a, a detailed conversation a few moments ago about interest rates and their impact. And mm -hmm. you were talking about some companies declaring bankruptcy mm -hmm. more often. Um, and I think that trend continues. And um, in terms of volume, deal volume is about half of what it was two years ago. Meaning new investments into existing companies. And and sales, and, and both, because they're, they're two sides gotcha. of the same coin often. I mean, there are, you can take companies public to exit and you can sell to public companies, but the, the private buyer to private buyer is is an active, active market. And um, it's roughly down 50%. So new investments are down and realizations are down, but the ones that are happening are actually happening at prices close to, if not entirely as much as they were 18, 24 months ago. So prices are holding up, just total volume is. So far, prices are holding up. Um, now, obviously- there, There's an implication there that the best companies are getting a price, and if you have a little a little hair on the deal or a blemish, not so much. Barry, you, you, you show yourself to be an astute observer or keen understanding of how the world works. That's exactly what happens. The, the average we see, which let's say is down maybe a half a multiple point, maybe three quarters of a multiple point, is com this year compared to two years ago, is only the ones that sold, which are going to be the better companies. Right. So the multiple drop is a little more than shown in the numbers quality adjusted. You're exactly right. I, right. I, I, I look at the world through the lens that everything is survivorship bias, so that you're seeing the winners, you're not seeing the ones that didn't close, and and that is, um, that's something that's never uh, that's never far from my thoughts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so let's focus on, on some of the sectors that uh, American securities really likes. Um, you're big in services, you're, you're big in consumer and healthcare, but you're especially formidable in industrials. Tell us about those sectors and, and what's been the appeal. Well, you're absolutely right. For the 30-year history of the firm, roughly 60% of our investments have been in so-called industrials, um, and the rest have been consumer services and healthcare. Um, with respect to industrials, um, I'm not sure why it is the case, but lots of people don't find it sexy. I mean, you think about what a big industrial manufacturer does. It, it's hard, it's dirty, it's complicated, um, as opposed to some new software app that all the kids love. There's a very different set of audiences for those businesses. Um, there is, but you know, we need our industrial base. And interestingly, in this country, it actually grows faster than the overall GDP by a point or two for the last 20 years. Um, it's That's a, amazing. It's a vibrant source of transactions, and um, it's been very successful for us. And we have, to some extent, built our resources group and some of our internal functions to help those management teams and those companies be better that are industrial companies. And the thing that we like about it is because we're very focused on creating 
the best risk-adjusted returns we can. Mm-hmm. So we like stable businesses, um, and we when we do our due diligence with a with an established business, industrial business, if you will, you can understand its manufacturing process and how that compares to its competitors. You can understand its suppliers and how it purchases raw materials and how that compares favorably or not to competitors. And you can understand the customers, and particularly if you're buying the number one market share player, you can really see the industry and know what customers are thinking. So we see stability in that. Um, And in a relatively large number of situations, we're able to see the indicia of a successful investment, equity investment, we hope, because of that stability and the ability to do due diligence, where other people in the venture world, for example, are just looking at how big is the runway, and if we build it, they will come, and and God bless them. Many of those folks have done terrific investing for their investors, but that's not what we do. We're looking at what is and and what can continue to be the case and how might we be able to help management make it better. So so you mentioned industrials have been um, growing faster than GDP over the past 20 years, an era, as we previously discussed, of, of very low interest rates. What does that mean for the next 10 or 20 years for industrials? How do you think about the sector today in a higher inflation, higher interest rate environment? Well, all, you know, all businesses are dealing in uh, in a in an active market, right? They have active competitors. Their customers are thinking how to do the best for themselves, suppliers likewise. And so the forces that will have made a company uh, survive and perhaps thrive over the last 20 years are likely to be pretty consistent and the product of market-based forces. And so um, the really good companies will should keep doing well irrespective of the environment. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. But again, it's more the microeconomic forces that are going to matter for that company than a general macroeconomic something. So let me let me tack in a slightly different direction. Um, a, a lot of your site talks about citizenship being a good corporate steward, and you have discussions of diversity and inclusion, philanthropy, ESG. Um, how do you work that? sort of focus into what you do on the private equity side? Well, some of it's, some of it's related and some of it enables the other stuff. So mm-hmm. um, we grew out of the Rosenwald family. The Rosenwald family had a terrific philanthropic legacy and were terrific citizens and cared about communities, and we try to do the same. So we, um, we have lots of programs that are philanthropic that are enabled by the success of our businesses. We mm-hmm. give us a fixed percent of, of, of our annual profits to, to charities every year, as an example. But there are other things that we're trying to do every day with our businesses. Um, you know, so-called ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors, we think are not only good for the planet, but they enable EBITDA growth. And so being a good steward is about being efficient. You don't want to waste energy and you want to reduce it if you can. You, you want to you don't certainly don't want your employees to get hurt on the job. So every uh, monthly book from every one of our companies for years and years and years starts with safety. It's the most important thing. We want employees that are showing up to know that they and their loved ones know we're in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this seems like how everyone should be acting, but we and I hope they are. We certainly are too. There's been a lot of studies on governance, and it turns out that companies and there's a little bit of a chicken and egg question here issue here, but. Companies that have broad governance with um, uh, a variety of people in in board positions and senior management positions tend to outperform, at least in the public markets, companies that, for example, have no women on their boards of directors. Um, Do you ever think about this when you're considering an investment, or is that the sort of thing that gets facilitated post-investment? Well, we think about... about being a good steward and a good corporate citizen and investing in businesses that enable us to do that going in, period, full stop. The boards, every one of our companies has an independent board. So the CEOs on the board, typically we're the controlling shareholders who are on the board, but we actually create a unique board for every company mm-hmm. um, and try to model the best of diversity in all its forms and diverse members on those boards. So this isn't just the sort of thing that is... Um you know, uh, green green dressing or whatever, greenwashing is the phrase of the day, there's an actual corporate advantage to having a diverse board. Is that, is that a fair way to look at it? I think, I think the, the studies you cite show 
that diversity is profitable. Okay. For, for, diversity is profitable for investors. Um, and the great thing about being a private company is there's a whole reduced liability structure for outside directors. So we often find, and I think this is broadly true for the private equity industry, uh, there's a lot of people who would who are great people and very experienced and can add value to boards that are actively interested in joining the boards of private companies, maybe even more so than public companies. All right, so let me uh, shift gears again. Uh, you were a lecturer. You began at Stanford in 2006. You're still doing that? Well, it's it's really one day a year. There was a, a, ter- Guest lecturer. a terrific uh, man, when, professor, when I was there, I became his research assistant, and he asked me to to come one day and talk about private equity. So I I go to Stanford one day a year since two thousand and six, and and you're involved in a number of other um, philanthropies, uh, the eleven sixty two Foundation, uh, the Atlantic Council. Um, there's it's just a run of this. Um, Northwell Health Board of Trustees of Princeton Theological Seminary. T- tell us a little bit about what you do on the philanthropic side. Well, you know, being a good corporate citizen isn't just talking about it. You got to walk the talk, and so um, I think it's important to give of one's time and one's treasure to these institutions. And uh, I'm uh, I'm proud to be able to do it. So I only have you for a few more minutes. Let Let's jump to our speed round, and uh, just ask you some of the same questions we ask all of our guests. Starting with what What have you been streaming these days? Tell us what's kept you entertained. Well, Barry, I watch so little personal media of any form. What I what I do watch is typically with my kids, and uh, The Witcher is a big fan favorite mm-hmm. for them, as are whatever Star Wars spinoff at the moment. Um, let's talk about mentors. You mentioned one of your early mentors who helped shape your career. Oh, I've I've been blessed with so many. I, I'd feel bad naming some, but I, I mentioned a couple of. Of PhD professors, there's people I've worked with. Uh, there's you know Chuck Klein, with whom I founded American Securities, who's a dear, dear mentor and important figure in my life. But there's I'm really blessed with a lot of people who've tried to help me. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? You know, pleasure reading is uh, is a sad casualty of my day job, mm-hmm. um, but occasionally I do get to steal some time. There's a terrific book that's so elegant and peaceful called A Gentleman in Moscow mm-hmm. about a man held in a hotel for decades. That is uh, a really a read I would recommend to other people. It was given to me by a colleague of mine. Um, and I'm currently reading Outlive um, by Peter Atia, mm-hmm. which is about you know living longer and, and living healthfully. Interesting. Uh, Our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give a recent college graduate interested in a career in private equity or investing? I think the the two most important things for a career in anything is, do you like the work and do you like the people? And I I tell my kids that and I tell everyone I meet, you know, don't, whatever it is, tech, uh, private equity, something else, don't get caught up in the hype. Do you like the work? Go try it or understand what your friends are more people more senior are doing and do you like the work it's you can't like private equity if you don't like modeling and numbers mm-hmm. so do you like the work and make sure you work with people you like because life is people and if you love the people you work with you'll be learning and growing and happy every day and if you don't it doesn't matter what you're doing you're not going to be happy and our final question what do you know about the world of private equity today you wish you knew back in 1994 when you were first launching your firm? I think uh, it would. it is amazing to me and probably to most of the other people who started in private equity in the 1980s that this has become a massive industry. Honestly, I thought, and I think most of the other people doing it thought, we were just, we just saw the world a little bit different and there were a bunch of companies which had cash flow characteristics different than their EPS characteristics and so we could buy some of these companies and, and have fun working with the management teams. And that this you know, little side niche has become <laughs> so huge um, is, is really uh, shocking to me. Huh, really, really fascinating. Michael, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Michael Fish. He is the CEO of American Securities, a $27 billion 
private equity firm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, feel free to check out any of our previous 500 discussions we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Sign up for our daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team who helps me put these conversations together each week. Meredith Frank is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.